Well, welcome. Good morning, everybody. Again, my name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here at In Town. We have been in a series talking about the life of Jesus and specifically looking at a couple of the things that we don't normally get a chance to talk about because we spend a lot of time right in the life of Jesus in his birth leading up to Advent and Christmas. We spend a lot of time talking about his death and his resurrection. These are good things. But because we talk about them every year, seasonally, it sometimes means we don't get to some of the other places in Scripture. And so we've been looking at a lot of firsts, like Jesus' first miracle. We looked at his first sermon. We looked at his temptation, his baptism, some other things like that. Today, we are going to look at the calling of the apostles, the calling of the disciples and we're going to talk about kind of two things with respect to that. And they're a little bit contradic- contradictory, or at least they sound contradictory. Because on one hand, we're, talk- we're going to talk about how incredibly unique the calling and sending of the apostles is. And on the other hand, we're also going to talk about how incredibly common and not unique at all it is. And both of those have incredible significance for us. So, Emily, would you come read for us God's Word this morning? This morning's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, again, would you show us how much you love us? Would you grow us? Would you challenge us and encourage us all this morning through your word? We thank you for the incredible privilege it is to, um, to hear from you and to go out into this world with you. I pray all this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to walk through this passage today, the sending of, the, the calling and the sending of the apostles. And again, I said we're going to look at the unique and common aspects of this. By the way, just putting a pin in it, when I say seemingly contradictory, I don't mean sort of, oh, here's a contradiction or even a, a you know, possible contradiction in Scripture. I'm just saying that it, it's really important when we look at Scripture that we see both how a passage can be very, very important in its moment and also what it means for us to rub up against that passage. We can take application from both of those things, and we're going to do that this morning. Let's look at the unique part of this first. Again, Jesus went up on the mountain and called to them those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12. 
He appointed 12. I want to remind you, for those of you who have been coming for the last couple of weeks of this series, Jesus does nothing unintentionally. Let me say that again. Jesus does nothing unintentionally. Jesus is always telegraphing who he is, what he's about, what his mission is, what his purpose in this world is. And he does it through things that are so cultural sometimes that you and I might not pick them up. And one of those is the number 12. Some of you may know that there are 12 tribes of Israel. And so the ancient people of God, the people that God called to be his representatives in the world, came from a single person, Abraham and his descendants, and eventually Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who is renamed Israel, has 12 sons. And these 12 sons become the representative heads of what would become an entire people, the nation of Israel. And this is the people of God that we track with throughout the Old Testament. So, think about it for a minute. Jesus, out of a group of larger people who are interested in him, he has been talking about the kingdom of God coming. We talked about that last week. His opening miracles have been miracles that reflect the kingdom of God coming in its fullness. The people of God finally being whole and unique and redeemed and renewed. And suddenly, out of that larger group of people, Jesus publicly calls 12 of them specifically to be his close followers. This is supposed to say something to people. I think just just because culturally sometimes we have elements of the New Testament that are culturally a part of our everyday speak, we think of 12 disciples and we just don't bat an eye. But this would have been a bomb going off. This would have been specifically what it would mean, you know, if you gather together, you know, a a group of, of athletes, for instance, Some of you who are big into sports, you know if I pick five of those athletes and they happen to be pretty tall guys, you know what sport we're going to be playing before I've even introduced the ball to the mix, right? If this is a group of people and I pick, you know, nine of them or 11 of them or, you know, some other group and half of them happen to be gigantic and one of them seems like he can throw a ball pretty well, like, again... This is supposed to telegraph something without me saying it obviously to people. Jesus, this is another place, even in the subtle thing of him calling the number 12, 12 people, he's telegraphing who he is, what he's here to do, which is to remake and redeem and renew God's people and ultimately the world. Now, he's going to appoint these 12, and he's going to name them or or appoint them apostles. Now, this is one place I don't want us to trip over. Apostle is a very specific title, and Mark is going to use the term apostle. Some gospel writers do not. Some gospel writers refer to a lot of different people following Jesus, but then they only refer to Jesus calling 12 disciples. Matthew, for instance, does this. Mark refers to a lot of people following Jesus as disciples, but then he says Jesus calls 12 apostles out of that. 
Other biblical writers literally sometimes just refer to them by their number as the 12. So don't get tripped up over that. We're talking specifically about this group here. The gospel writers are not confused. But this, is, this by itself is, is nothing new. Um, and this is actually a good thing that it's nothing new. While on one hand, the number 12 would have been something telegraphing a, a big deal. On the other hand, maybe on the common side, this is uh, something that rabbis did in Jesus' day. You have to remember, we, don't, we live in an information-rich and a very accessibly rich environment. I mean, I have literally joked before um, about many of our students here and how I think if I gave them a case of Red Bull and a computer, I could just tell them go and they could at least become passive, passively like masterful at any task just based on watching people do it on YouTube for about 12 hours or so. Like, like th- this would be just easy. You could pick it up. You can do it. This is not the case. I cannot buy a biblical textbook and hand it to the disciples and say, here is you know, how to be a Christian, or here's how we're going to build the church, or here's how we're going to do X or Y or Z. No. The, 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 the teaching structure, the rabbinic structure of the day literally would have been a rabbi would have called out a number of people, men from a community, young men, and they would live with him, and they would follow him, and they would learn from his words. They would also learn simply by watching him do what he did, They would watch him live. They would watch how he washed his hands and how he ate and how he greeted people and how he slept. And they would literally model their lives around his. And so, you know, we actually, you'll still see this if you have Orthodox Jewish friends today who actually will follow or their synagogue will follow a tradition of a rabbi. Jesus calls these apostles because unlike the, the rest of the disciples or just followers who are going to follow him and are going to have contact with him a lot, these guys are going to eat, sleep, and breathe Jesus. They're going to see him at his best. They're going to see him in his most pained worst. They're going to see all of the things he does. And there's a specific reason for that. And I think it's the issue that, that I'll be honest, I, if I was going to make a list of the life of Jesus, going to sketch out a biography, this might be one of the most common things I would completely forget. I will completely acknowledge to you as a pastor here, when I opened up God's word to preach on this, I forgot even where it was. Jesus does not only call his apostles, he does not only call his disciples, but fairly early on in his ministry, he sends them out. Like I I often, you know, I, I think of the framework as Jesus is born, lives his life, starts his ministry, and calls his disciples. They do a bunch of stuff for three years that's recorded in the New Testament. And then after that, we get death, burial, resurrection, ascension into heaven, and then the church, and we're off to the races. And so I I kind of think about that pattern as preparing to be sent, and then the sending, then the church. But Jesus actually sends his disciples out fairly early on in their time with him. 
Mark will recount this in Mark chapter 6 if you're interested in some of the details there. But I think it's really significant that fairly early on, Jesus gathers these guys together. He does begin to teach them and whatnot, but he gives them authority. Now, specifically here, authority to cast out demons. Mark is uh, one of the gospel writers who highlights a lot of the supernatural activity of Jesus. Miracles, calling out um, demons, pushing back the darkness in a very, very tangible way. Um, We need to read this as uh, not saying, oh, you know, demons, we don't really think about supernatural stuff anymore. But we also want to read more than just demons here. We don't, want, we don't want to just read, this is the one thing that Jesus gives them. No, Jesus gives them himself. He gives them authority to be representatives of him, not only in a cognitive sense, but in a sense of power. This is reflected later in an interaction Jesus will have that some of you all know very well. Uh, when Jesus heals a paralytic man. Um, In the Gospels, uh, there's a moment in which a uh, group of friends bring a paralyzed man to Jesus. They can't get to him, and so they cut a hole in the roof of the house in which he is teaching. The man is lowered down, and Jesus interacts with this man. And what Jesus does is to say, your sins are forgiven. And all the Pharisees and all everyone around him, they're flabbergasted by this statement, this expression, both because the guy showed up for healing and Jesus doesn't seem to heal him, but also because Jesus claims an incredible divine authority here to forgive sin. Now, Jesus does this, but then he goes back and says, and so that you know that the Son of Man can forgive sin, that I do have this authority, get up and walk. In the same way, the reason Jesus gives them this authority to preach, to cast out demons, to to act as him is because there's a sense in which the message can't simply be some sort of marketing campaign. This is not simply them going out and practicing. This is not simply them going out and holding little Bible studies and hoping to attract some more people. No, they are bringing the same thing Jesus has been doing, preaching the kingdom of God and doing miracles that line up with what God is planning on doing, he's giving them the authority to do the same thing. Why does this matter for us? Again, I said in some ways this was sort of the application of of this is what this meant for them. Why would it matter for us? I think there are a couple of reasons But the biggest one is this. I think we need to see that building up the church was always the point. We we live in a day and age where sometimes I I think, and I'm not sure why, I'm not sure if this is because of sort of a, a kind of guru mentality or an independence that desires to do spirituality on our own terms and not be constrained by an institution, But a lot of people talk about, oh, Jesus didn't come to bring um, a a religion or an institution. He came to start a movement, or he came to be a, a philosopher or a wise teacher, or maybe he even came to be God, but I have Jesus, and me and him are good, and I don't need 
the church. The church has been too messed up. It's done too much. It's struggled too much. I'm good. What we see here at the beginning is Jesus instilling in the disciples authority and teaching and knowledge that would be necessary to build up the body of Christ, to build up the people of God in a structure of authority. They were going to have to know who to listen to, how to figure this out, how to do what it means to do life together as the people of God. They were going to have to know who to look to. Where's the authority coming from? And Jesus gives it to his disciples right here. There's a great importance to that. I think it's important that the disciples receive it here. Sometimes in, in writings and blog posts I've come across, sometimes people could also say, well, you know, I follow Jesus. I don't really follow the rest of the New Testament because I think Jesus was doing great and doing his thing and saying his thing. And then this Paul guy just takes it off into left field and writes a bunch of weird stuff that seems systematic and and, and, and bad. And Jesus is about love. And Paul seems to be more about judgment again and, 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 and setting things up and structures and power. No, Jesus right here establishes that the church is going to need people again who will be listened to. It's actually a beautiful place because, you know, we see in, in Galatians, you might know, Paul and Peter actually get into it. Um, Peter is kind of being a little pharisaical. He's not uh, following in the way of Jesus, and Paul calls him on it. However, later in Peter's writings, Peter actually references back to Paul and says, you should listen to him. He literally puts Paul on the same standard as other scriptural writings that he wants the church to follow. If not for Jesus instilling in his disciples an authority that was beyond just knowledge, but an authority that had to do with actual leadership and power, we would not have what we were able to have, this beautiful miracle in the church of thousands of people coming to faith. And, and even though we see a lot of kind of the, the leadership struggles we see in the writings of Paul, actually there's a lot less argument and fighting and opposition in the church than you would ever think to admit I mean, imagine right now, even just in town here, but if you, if you, if you multiply this by 10, if you said there's going to be three to 5,000 people are suddenly going to come together and make up one church, and out of that three to 5,000 people, we have to elect, let's say 10, maybe 20. 20 of them are going to have the power and the control and the authority. I mean, guys, in our day and age, it would be a bloodbath. Even if we were all of one mind and one purpose, it would still be crazy. And yet God, because of what Jesus has done, instills in this now. And I think what this means is this has to give us a deep grace and love for the church, even when it is so broken and so hard. Martin Luther, the, the famous reformer, um, was quoted as saying, you know, the church is a whore but she is my mother. That there was a sense in which we're in this. These are our people. I love that we were able to do this on, on a Sunday that we, we gained members. I promise you, those of you who just joined the church, this is not a perfect church. 
we are going to do things that will make you angry and that you will question and that you will struggle. And that is the way the church is. But I love the fact that we don't base you joining us on our competency or our success, but no, but, but, but on Jesus. And saying the word of God is going to be preached and we're going to follow him and we're going to do this thing together. I think also one more aspect of this is that Jesus, as he, they are with him and he sends them out to preach, there is this sense in which we already see that there was going to be an importance to the actual words of Jesus. These guys weren't just going to learn about Jesus. They weren't going to be studying religious texts. They weren't just going to be gaining some sort of education. These guys were going to be the record we would have of what Jesus actually said and did. This is also the basis for the Bible, for Scripture right here that we don't have a biblical text, New Testament-wise, that's based on a bunch of people hearing about Jesus and hoping that what they're putting down is some sort of collective memory about what he once said. No, these are actual people who remembered what Jesus smelled like, who remembered what Jesus did every morning when he woke up, who remembered what the sea felt like when this happened or what the wine at the wedding of Cana we learned about a couple of weeks ago tasted like. These are people who are able to actually convey to us truth. And so there's a a great beauty, a great love, a great thankfulness for Jesus doing things this way. A uniqueness that says, for all of the other people who talk about Jesus and who wrote about Jesus and who are in the New Testament, Jesus instilled in a group of people something very special and very unique. At the same time, I want to also emphasize how common this is. Not in some sort of giving of special authority, not in some prophetic message thing that you or I or somehow receive. No, like we have, a, we have a closed Bible, we have a canon, we have, you know, Jesus' words already written down for us. I am not an apostle. Jimmy is not an apostle. We're not holding that as some sort of special thing by any means. But there's an incredible significance to the commonness of this because even though I have literally just built these men up, specially called by God, almost reimagining the, the nation of Israel, learning from Jesus, carrying with him supernatural authority and his very words and life. Look at this. Peter. We're going to find out Peter denies Jesus. He's militant enough to carry a sword around him and shoot before he thinks He, as I already mentioned, is a Pharisee who gets into it with Paul. We've got James and John who literally get nicknamed sons of thunder because of how hot-headed and arrogant they are, so much so that when Jesus gets insulted at some point, they literally ask him if they can call down fire from heaven to kill people in public who have uh, offended Jesus. 
We've got Bartholomew, who often was a skeptic and who possibly, um, John recounts Bartholomew having another name of, of Nathaniel, who may have some racist undertones, or at least not trusting Jesus' kind of redneckness as being from Nazareth. We've got Matthew, who is a tax collector, who, which was basically like a, a Jewish mafia member. We've got Thomas, of course, who's famous for his doubting. We've got Simon the Zealot, which meant he possibly was literally a terrorist. And we've got Judas. I mean, that alone, friends, should blow your minds. This text does not say Jesus called 12 of them as apostles and he sent 11 of them out to preach and Judas stayed back because he was sick with a cold and he's the guy who ends up betraying Jesus. Judas also went out to preach and declare the kingdom of God and to cast out demons. You all have seen this uh, painting or, or etching a couple of times as sort of our, our uh, logo slide for this series. This is by Rembrandt, um, the famous painter and printer um, in the Renaissance. This is nicknamed the 100 Gilder print for how um, much money it raised at the time, but it's actually called Christ Heals the Sick. It's an amazing work, both because Rembrandt takes uh, a lot of different events at once in Matthew 19 and kind of compresses them together as if they all happen together. So you see Jesus here in the middle um, preaching, but also greeting children and the elderly and dealing with uh, Pharisees and also talking to the rich young ruler, um, among some other things here. What I love about this, this uh, print, though, as well, is that Renaissance, or, uh, Rembrandt saw this as sort of uh, an experiment of trying to use as many printing and etching techniques as he could. And so if you see the text, you see very, very, uh, the print very, very uh, dark, inky over here. You see it almost has a, a sketch-like quality over here because of what he wanted to display. And I love this because of, of, of how this passage in Mark chapter 3 really speaks to me and something that I'd love to, I, I hope you're able to take away with this as well. Who Jesus didn't call were the top five rabbinical students of his day with the highest rabbi SAT scores. He did not call a group of people with MBAs or degrees in organizational leadership and management knowing that he was about to start a gigantic world-shattering institution called the church. He doesn't even call a bunch of people who don't have a bunch of issues. He doesn't call a, call a bunch of people with a great reputation. He doesn't call a bunch of people even with, really with most of the skills you would assume you would want religious teachers to have. I mean, literally on this list, your top skills present are fishermen and boatsmen and possibly clerk. These people were not chosen because of their ability or skill. 
to go out and usher in the kingdom of God. They were chosen because they were chosen by Jesus, because they were loved by Jesus, because Jesus wanted them around him, and he wanted them to learn and to grow. You and I have to recognize that while we are not apostles, while we have not been called at this small, special time in the life of Jesus, we have also been called as his disciples and sent out into this world. You also get the incredible opportunity and responsibility of showing this world that the kingdom of God is here in Jesus. And you get that opportunity and that responsibility regardless of how much biblical knowledge you have. You do not have a seminary degree before you go out and do this. Regardless of how sinful you are, Look at this list. Regardless of how busy you are. Many of these guys were called literally in the midst of their jobs and in their lives. I think what you and I need to hear, and I put myself in this because I'm right there with you, there is nothing about you that disqualifies you from being sent into this world as one of Jesus' disciples. I love this Rembrandt print because of how it shows almost like a journey of development. God uses the disciples at multiple different times in their lives. He uses it here in Mark chapter 3 when they barely know anything. And he is going to use them when they know a a little bit but still have run away from him and question why he had to die, he is going to use them right after he goes up into heaven when they still haven't written down anything that he said yet, and he's going to use them for the next almost 100 years personally to establish his people. He uses you and he uses me When we are kids, from the mouth of babes, he uses us when we are very broken and when we have a, a unique moment of clarity that says, I am screwed up and I need Jesus and other people find out about it. He uses you in moments of maturity when you get called to teach others and to declare and help explain biblical truths. But he uses you just as much when you are talking to a friend at work and they ask you a hard question and you're like, I don't know. Can we figure that out together? How about we go listen to this podcast? Or let's, let's you know, let me go ask my pastor if there's any good resources. Or do you know something? I'd love to read with you. He uses us in our old age when we tell the stories of God's faithfulness that span generations. He uses you in your busyness because, again, I don't, I don't care how busy you are. I've got five kids. You guys know me. But hey, having five kids gets me in conversations that some of you can't have. And the fact that 
some of you don't have five young children definitely means you are in lots of spaces I cannot go. God has called you and equipped you. Now, does that mean we say, okay, screw it. That's great. I don't need to learn anymore. I don't need to grow anymore. Of course not. We want to be a community that is continuing to learn, that is continuing to mature. I want to know and process the deep, difficult issues of this world and this life with my friends, with my family, learning from God's word together, growing together, reading things together. I want to have some answers so that when my friends do ask me things, I can say without, you know, lying or treading water that, no, you know, I have actually been thinking about that. Let's talk about it. But God in his beautiful sovereignty is calling each and every one of you where you are, who you are, how you are in this moment also to be an usher of the kingdom. You are not too busy. You are not too broken. You know enough. You've been through enough. You also are one of Jesus' disciples. So let us commit together to being a people who listen to the unique words of these unique men, the apostles, who can trust their writing, who dedicate ourselves to being people of the Bible. And yet let us also realize that as we are doing that forever and ever, God is going to use that at every stage and in every place to continue to build his kingdom. You and I are part of that today. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for calling us, even as you called your apostles and your disciples. Thank you for calling a bunch of messed up people Thank you for showing us in at least tiny ways how they grew and giving us hope that we're going to grow also. But thank you so much for not giving me, much less my family here, one more hurdle to jump over in this insane rat race of life before I feel like I could feel your love and your desire to use me. You love us and you use us now. And that in and of itself is an incredible grace and an incredible glory. Help us, God, in all of our struggles, in all of our fights against sin, in all of our feelings of immaturity and brokenness and failure to walk out of here knowing that we still too are called by God. I pray this in your name. Amen.